Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 84. I am your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, I'll be talking with one of the true masters of the art of juggling, a man with a career of over 50 years, Mr. Albert Lucas. Before we talk to Albert, though, let me thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. This great group of jugglers can be found on the internet at juggle.org. Speaking of the internet, you can join the IJA this July 13th through the 19th for their online virtual festival. Hope to see you there. I'll be doing a special live Drop Everything podcast directly from this year's IGA virtual festival. All right, sit back, drop everything, get ready for Mr. Albert Lucas. Welcome to Drop Everything number 84, a true legend in the art of juggling and a real inspiration to my own personal career, Mr. Albert Lucas. Welcome, Albert. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine, my friend. Hey, let's get started with something very, very important. A very important question, because most of my juggling uh, interviews so far, they didn't come from show business families, but your dad was very important to you and a very great entertainer in his own right. Please tell me, who was your father, and how and why did he teach you to juggle? Uh, my dad's uh, full name is Albert Marrera. Uh, I was named after him. My full name is Albert Lucas Marrera. I received my mother's maiden name, which is Lucas. Uh, that became my stage name. Obviously, it's nice to pronounce and so forth. But uh, dad was part of the famous acrobatic troupe called the Los Gatos Trio. They were discovered in Baltimore, Maryland at a, a cabaret talent show by a Milton Berle, another famous vaudeville performer. All of them, Nick and Los Gatos, was formed at the YMCA in Baltimore. That's how they met each other. And uh, as you know, the lure of show business sometimes, uh, but the vaudeville era was so spectacular. And uh, Nick and dad uh, were creative types. And that's how the Los Gatos got started. And why juggling? Why not acrobatics or show business in some other form? What led them to teach you to juggle? And also, of course, Nick teaching Anthony to juggle. Well, I'll tell you, at two years old uh, in Germany, my dad had this doctor who was examining me, you know, for my general health. And he said, you realize that he's probably going to be about six foot tall. He had a way of measuring one of the bones in the body. And so my dad said, oh, wow, there goes his acrobatic career. And so he made me a juggler. That's basically how that happened. And what jugglers have he seen? Have he seen a juggler that inspired him, like maybe uh, Bobby May or someone like that, that led him to think juggling was for you? Oh, my goodness. He loved juggling. He loved the patterns of juggling. He worked with the greats like Serge Flash, Maximilio Truzzi, of course, Francis Brunn. Bobby May, uh, they loved, uh, oh God, they had such a great sense of humor, those two. There were many, many jugglers, Rudy Cardenas, obviously. And so he loved to juggle. He loved to see the patterns. And so did Nick. But they were never going to be good jugglers because they had a certain body type. And they love acrobatics and the physicalness of it all. And so that's kind of what set the die early on. And do you remember how he got you started, like at two and a half? Did he start with scarves or balls? Do you remember anything about your early training? I can remember the moment that I juggled three balls, and I did start with scarfs. And, uh, yeah, he started me with the, um, well, what was the name of the old magic company that made the juggling balls? It was pretty, pretty interesting. And that was my first set of juggling balls, and I practiced over the bed. And then um, it just happened. One day, there I was juggling. And I see by my notes, you juggled three balls at three years old, four balls at four years old, and five balls at five years old. What kind of training regimen was it like every day or there hours a day or was it kind of casual at first? Yeah, uh, my dad was uh, 
was a great parent. I should note that my parents divorced when I was about three years old. And uh, my mother started her life, but she was kind enough and sacrificed to allow me to be raised by my dad. It's a, it's a wonderful story. So in the wings, I would watch jugglers and I'd watch performers. They would sit me there. And I, of course, I'd watch the Los Gatos. So I had, had some sort of idea of what was going on. But when he started training me, it was always something he gave to me as a fun thing to do. Like he never, never, ever yelled at me for juggling, for not doing well, not doing badly, uh, for not practicing. Uh, he certainly never struck me or anything like that. And uh, juggling became just something that we did together. And then, of course, he uh, did a little uh, Pavlov's dog, if you would. There was this positive reinforcement. We would do these little deals if I learned this trick or that trick. I would get a little model because I love putting models together. And then I had an erector set where I built little mechanical bridges and things like that. And that just progressed into photography and chemistry. And later, of course, some of the sports uh, that I went into. And was the idea that you were going to be a performer with the juggling? What was your first professional or your first experience on stage? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I grew up in, uh, in Hollywood, California. And uh, the Los Gatos, my dad retired when I turned three years old. And he uh, committed to giving me a career in show business. But in the Hollywood area, there were so many retired vaudeville, old vaudeville performers, like Milton Berle would come into town and they would call dad or, or Danny Kay or Debbie Reynolds. And so I got to meet a lot of these vaudeville greats. And there was this place called the Hollywood Comedy Club. And it was sort of a half comedy club, half theatrical. And they did a tremendous amount of charity work. They raised money for retired vaudeville performers or People had medical bills, things like that, and they would do an they would do these shows once a month, and so they'd all heard about Albert's son from the Los Gatos, and that he was this wonderful juggler, and so they invited me to do the show. Now, Dad told them that uh, you know how young I was; I was five years old, and uh, of course, following the old accident that uh, W. C. Fields made famous, you, you don't ever want to work with children or animals. They kept putting me towards the end of the show in the running order. And dad said to him, well, it's a little past his bedtime. I don't know if he's going to make it. And sure enough, uh, when it came time for my performance, I was fast asleep. So they had to invite me back the next month. Uh, so my first show is age five at the old uh, Hollywood Comedy Club. And did your dad bring in any other people? I know you worked with uh, Bob Yerkes, who was a famous circus performer and, and circus coach back in Los Angeles. Did he bring in some other people to, to help out with the training? Well, basically, he wanted me to learn... And this is where my dad always stood to the side. He wanted me to learn and act professional. And Bob Yerkes and his wife, Dorothy, great people. I would go out with him sort of as an apprentice, but I would perform in the show. And I learned about, hey, there was space in the dressing room, uh, how to do your music rehearsal, what was expected of you for publicity. When I behaved in a professional manner and so forth, Bob would re reward me. Uh, he would teach me the trapeze or he'd teach me the tightrope. It was just a wonderful experience. So I kind of learned my craft of how to be a good professional. And then, of course, I went with uh, the famed John Strong Circus, Gay Charles, Clyde Beatty, the George Matthews Circus. And they were such wonderful times, such great memories. And what was your schooling like? Did you go to regular school or were you homeschooled? How'd they bring your education into it? My dad, uh, he was so meticulous. He, he wanted me to have that portion of my life. So I went to public school in Hollywood, California, up to the, I believe the fifth, uh, no, I think it was the sixth grade, actually. And please forgive me, I'm trying to be exact. I've never really talked about these things and some of them I had to go look up, but it was the sixth grade in Hollywood, California. 
it was great. I played uh, playground baseball and sports. And of course, uh, back in those days, uh, public education was really kind of exciting. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. When I went on tour and things like that, I was educated through the Calvert School. It's out of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. My dad was familiar with it because it was the education tool of choice for the State Department. This is how they educated through proctoring and tutoring. This is how the diplomats would educate their children many times in foreign posts. It's a really great school and the curriculum was wonderful. So wherever we went, I would have a tutor and I would do either my work from the public school. And then eventually I transferred into uh, the Calvert School full time when my career took off. And what were the kids around you thinking about your juggling? Did you have any young friends and did they look at your juggling as something unusual? Oh, my goodness. Nobody knew that I was a juggler. It wasn't like to the set where I would juggle things on the playground or I would, uh, you know, say, hey, I traveled here or I did this or in geography. I'd go, oh, look, I, I've been to that place and, and I could talk about it. It wasn't kind of like that. It was really I think it was until the fifth grade when the principal asked me to perform in the school talent show and I performed my juggling act. And then all of a sudden, all my classmates said, wow, you're a juggler. Like, <laughs> yeah. So first, second, third, fourth grade, really, nobody knew. In the fifth grade after that darn talent show, then everybody was trying to get me to juggle. Hey, can you juggle this? Hey, how about juggle that? Hey, here's here's some baseballs. How many baseballs? can you? Yeah, I mean, it just went on and on. Did you become like the juggler? Did that become sort of your identity? Oh, God, it, it never ends. And I'm sure you can attest to this. How many times you've been at a party? and they find out you're a juggler, the usual questions come forward or they'll hand you things to juggle, cheese puffs, you know, you name it, tools. One time I would say, hey, could you juggle goldfish? And I said, well, I probably could, but that's not gonna happen. Yeah, not for very long, at least. Yeah. Not yeah. live ones. Well, come on, what about you? Anybody ask you to juggle some, you know, weird things at a weird time? I remember like when we were kind of doing uh, TV shows and stuff, it's nice, people would introduce me like, oh, here's my famous friend. And I say, look, if you have to tell them I'm famous, I'm not famous. Right, right. So yeah. I think since I was like 13 or 14, I was that weirdo that always juggled. Wherever I went, I had three oranges because I didn't even know about lacrosse balls or anything like that. I got green oranges, but I always had oranges with me and I always juggled. So I guess I, guess I self-identified as a juggler more than other people called me the juggler. Well, let me ask you this. You see... You're self-taught. I always had a coach. My whole juggling career, I always had a coach. So I have the highest respect for people who have so much desire that they learn to teach themselves. And many points, I can't even imagine what's that like. Could you tell them, I, I'm curious, I never asked you this question. When did you decide you were going to learn to juggle? And, and what was that like? And how old were you? And what was the first things you juggled? 1974, I got that book, The Juggling Book by Carlo. And I was always interested in show business. I liked old show business, movie monsters, old TV stars, anything to do with show business, Harry Houdini. I liked magic, but I always thought magic was boring because you had to show people. And if there was nobody around, you really couldn't do much with it. At least that's what I thought. So when I found juggling, I was, I was hooked right away. I remember I visited you when I was 17. That's uh, right. And I went to the ice capades because I heard they had a juggler. And we'll get to the, your, this part of your career. And I was so kooky that I brought a devil stick with me to the show just in case I'd get a chance to meet the juggler. And during, I think it was either intermission or even before the show, I was so amped up to meet a juggler because I had seen so few of them except for Chris Cremo on TV. 
Sure. I always remember this. And if anybody asks me about Albert Lucas, this is one of the stories I always tell to illustrate what a good guy I think you are. Not only did you meet me, you took me backstage, introduced me to your dad and your brother, and really made me feel special. So that was a wonderful introduction to what I considered a, a professional juggler and how they should act, especially with younger jugglers. So I always appreciate that. Well, my dad always, uh, always remembered meeting you. And I think, didn't you go back and train with him in Vegas uh, at one point? Not really. I think I wasn't that kind of juggler. I think people thought I was a better juggler than I was. Because at a, at a certain point, I was working on five clubs and seven balls. But I was always more interested in the comedy aspect of it. So I never did like the serious training to become a, a serious technical juggler. And so I don't think I really took advantage of what your dad could have taught me. Yeah, I remember you came and visited him and he talked about it. He said how quickly you learned, you know, how you were able to grasp the ideas and, and the, the conversations. I, I wasn't there, so I, but I do remember him uh, talking about you. And I, I love your description about uh, meeting another juggler because in 69, when I went to IJA, when I was a kid, I had that, you described it perfectly. I walked into a room and there were other jugglers and there were a room full of other jugglers and props and pictures of other jugglers and careers. And oh my God, it was like a, a juggling Disneyland, I guess, a e-ticket using an old term. <laughs> you know, it was it was a great moment for me. Was that in Los Angeles? What, where was that at that festival? Yeah, the first one uh, that I went to was 69 in Los Angeles. And then the following year was also in Los Angeles, which I attended. Now by 69, you're already a working professional. Uh, you toured with Liberace for two years from 68 to 70. What are your memories of touring with Liberace? Oh my goodness, talk about uh, a wonderful person, a wonderful organization of professional people. Ray Arnett was his production manager. Uh, Dr. Gordon Robinson did his music. And of course, these are the days where even my music, you know, was sheet music, so you had to have a, re a rehearsal. But he was Mr. Showmanship. He went, we went all over the world with him. It was just incredible to be on that stage with the piano. And I did the theater and the rounds, so the stage would actually rotate while we performed. And there's so many stories I have of Uncle Lee and uh, uh, Seymour Heller, who was his, uh, his manager. Uh, AVI was the company that represented him. I learned so much about what it meant to be gracious. And uh, of course, uh, he's no longer with us. And I really wish he could be around to see how the United States has changed, how people can get married now that uh, have different lifestyle. They can adopt children. It's just wonderful. And even on the medical front, because I did see a lot of beautiful people pass away affected with AIDS, and that was tragic. The um, Jerry Jackson, who produced the Tropicana show, the beautiful Follies Bajer, he and I were very good friends, and unfortunately, he was taken from us way too early. I wish he could have been around to, to see all the, the beauty of it, and of course, the medical advances now, where they can actually stop the spread of HIV, but it's just a beautiful person. I learned so much from that organization. We call him Uncle Lee. I, God, there's just so much. I, 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 there's so many stories I could share. Now with Liberace, did they, were you like an opening act or did he bring you out during the course of the show like a special guest? How long were you doing and what kind of juggling were you doing at nine? Like what were some of the feats you would do? Well, um, the first thing I came out with was the four discs. And uh, this is back when my dad was my assistant. He was only my assistant for a short amount of time, and then he got off the stage once he felt comfortable. I did the pocket balls, the reverse pocket ball routine. I did uh, beach balls, three and four beach balls. Of course, I did uh, my five, six, and seven rings. I was just getting into it at that time. 
I would end with my uh, three torches, which was always kind of rough because dad had these big torches because like clubs, I never had clubs for my size. So I was always juggling clubs that were a lot bigger than I was. And then I would end with a, with the, uh, let's say I did a small uh, Francis Brun type of garbage trick, which I later transferred to the ice. And of course, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, when I was born in 1960, the Los Gatos were the opening act for Liberace at the London Palladium. In fact, it was Liberace who told my dad, you have a son. Oh, what do you mean? He, he found out first? Well, this is in the days where maybe the star's dressing room had a phone. And so uh, my mom called from the hospital and they put the call backstage and it went into uh, Liberace's dressing room. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So Lee said, I'll tell him. And so uh, <laughs> Ed came off after the opening and Lee was in the wings. He said, uh, Albert, you're a dad and you have a son. Wow. It was just really great. And later on, years later, when, uh, let's see, uh, I think, I can't remember, Seymour Heller saw a newspaper article in, about me in Los Angeles, and they recognized uh, the name, and the dad, Los Gatos Trio, was in the story, and they contacted us, and that's how I got my start with Lee. You said something funny, too, that I remember. You always called the combination trick a garbage trick. Yeah. Was that something, was that something your dad said? Or like, like you sort of a modified Brun finish with the different, the mouse stick and the ring on the arm and stuff like that. What did you start calling that the garbage trick? That's what he called it. He just, <laughs> he just called it the garbage trick because uh, all the garbage I had left in my prop box is what I would use in the last trick. Tubes on the leg, uh, spinning a hoop on my arm, the beach ball I would spin, and then I would do two or three rings on my left side with a mouse stick with two balls, two balls balanced on that. And it was, you know, it was a very impressive trick. It was kind of a standard trick of the day. Different people had different versions on it. Uh, and they did it in their different style, and I enjoyed doing it. One thing I remember about your props is that you always use the fiberglass. I don't know when you started, but I always remember using the fiberglass Stu Reynolds clubs, which I always thought was beast-like because if, if you haven't tried them, they're super heavy and super painful. When did you start using those, and why do you, you stick with the fiberglass clubs pretty much your whole career? Well, my first clubs were actually sticks, and you got to remember that Getting a club for the size of a seven-year-old was just impossible. So sticks were the, the only thing that could be crafted to my hand size. Fortunately, I had a pretty good hand spread, so I could hold a little larger than normal. But Homer Stack made me my first clubs that I actually juggled with in my act. Prior to that, it was sticks. But Stu Reynolds made me my very first custom my size, my style, my grip size clubs. And once I got those clubs, I excelled, especially with the three. And then, of course, going to the ice capades and trying to have a lot of movement, that required a different style of club with the aerodynamics, a little different weight. But you're correct on the fact that they, wow, they really, they really hurt your hands. In fact, when I was learning to juggle on ice, I was training at the Robbie Robinson International Ice Palace in Las Vegas. And uh, Robbie Robinson was an internationally known figure skater. Uh, he had the world's fastest spin, something like 430 revolutions per minute. It was clocked. And he was a silver medalist at the World Championships, silver medalist at the Olympic Games. He was just an outstanding uh, athlete. And he was my coach early on there to transition from the stage. But I wouldn't have been able to do it without those clubs. 
Let's talk about your transition to ice skating. Why was that choice made? Was it opportunity? What led your dad or you to decide that your next move would be going with the ice capades? Well, I was um, at the Tropicana. I had just followed in Francis Brun, a great, great <laughs> juggler, legendary individual, uh, always very gracious and well-spoken. Uh, we had many conversations, just him and myself. And, I, and when I think back, he must have gotten an ear fill of, hey, have you seen this little kid? He's phenomenal, right? Hey, see this little kid? He's phenomenal. <laughs> right. You know, but uh, he was always so great for me. I remember one of, the, one of the things he said. He said, as good as Francis Brun is, I can only perform at one place at one time. Therefore, there's always room in show business for a good juggler. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And I remember those words. Now, I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but he was that kind of uh, a gracious individual. When he came to see me years later at the Hacienda, he could only stay for, I went on the beginning of the show. This was also an ice show. He couldn't stay for the whole show. And in, as was the tradition of his generation, he sent a very nice note back. Albert, you've really grown and matured. I love your routine and your use of music. Your three clubs are better than ever. Continued success, uh, Francis. And I, I still have that note. And it was sent back to me. And of course, I didn't. I never actually saw him because he had to go back wherever his travels were. That shows you the graciousness of that era. And that's something that you experienced when you came to see us. And this is what happened at the Tropicana when I was performing there. The president of Ice Capades was a fellow by the name of George Eby. And the producer was named Bob Turk. Now, Bob Turk was also a dancer, and he did choreography at the Lido in Paris, and he did adagio. And he sought out my dad on lifting techniques. This is back when he was just in the chorus. My dad worked with him on how to lift a girl in the air and not to hurt your back. And so years later, he uh, was the producer of Ice Capades, and he convinced George Eby to come see me at the Tropicana. And uh, they saw my show there. They came backstage, and dad and him swapped old stories and they said, well, you, we'd love to have your son uh, perform with us uh, if he only did an ice skates. And my dad goes, well, yeah, he, he does his act on ice. <laughs> right, right. Always say yes, okay. Right, yeah. And I looked at my dad and you know, I knew enough to keep my mouth shut and just say yes, 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 sir. And uh, they both said, wow, great. We'd love to work him in the show. We've got three units of ice capades. When can we see the act? And my dad said, well, uh, set a date about 12 weeks later. He said, uh, you know, I need a little time off. and I need to do this. I need to do that. And the next day, there I was down at Roddy Robinson's International Ice Palace learning to ice skate and juggle. <laughs> and what were some of the challenges of juggling on ice? Obviously moving, but did the props get wet when you dropped them? What were some of the things you experienced going from the stage to the ice? The cold. The cold was the first thing to have to adjust to. Next was the balance. So many times I'd be juggling and moving and I would just fall over. I'd lose my balance. I'd lose an edge. And that's when they, in between the juggling practice, I was taught to be a figure skater. Now, had you skated at all before this? I mean, did you have any experience? Yes, I could, I could ice skate. Yes, I could ice skate before that. I, I could go forward, backward. I, I was born with good balance. I won the genetic lottery in regard to that. I, I had a natural balance point. So the transition just became to understand the physics 
there was two blades that were that on the one blade there was two edges you took an inside edge and outside you had to learn how you weight shift and then in between that you had to learn how to transfer your timing of juggling and i remember the day it was about four weeks in and i had just i'd broken all my rings i'd busted up two sets of Stu reynolds clubs my hands were just in such bad shape. I would do the rings and skate down and they would fall behind me. They fall, I just, everything was going wrong. Everything was going wrong. And so I came off the ice and I was so rejected. And I just, you know, I was feeling this failure of why couldn't I get it? I'm, I'm 12 years old here. And my dad said, hey, don't worry about it. You'll get it. He said, well, what would you like to do right now? And I said, man, I'd really like to go get a milkshake. And he said, let's go get a milkshake. Right. <laughs> and then he said, what would you like to do? I says, uh, well, uh, let's, let's go to the arcade. I always have fun at the arcade. So well, let's go, let's go to the arcade. And so we went to the arcade, we had fun and it was such a great day. And my dad never alluded to anything that was going on because I was working with Robbie Robinson and, you know, he was teaching me how to skate and my dad was in the wings and he was just watching. The next day I woke up, I came back and I stepped on that ice. And in my brain was the formula to ice skate and juggle. I never had a bad day again on the ice where I couldn't figure out the timing, where I couldn't do the things that I did on the stage, where I couldn't do them. I mean, from that day forward, that next morning, it was just wonderful. What was this formula? Was it just sort of a, a, an understanding of what to do? Can you kind of sort of verbalize what that was? My dad brought uh, peace. He, he brought a peace to my mind, mm. a calmness to my mind that I didn't fail. He wasn't like that. He expected me to put in the time. He instilled what it meant to be a professional. I learned that. I learned what that meant because I worked with a lot of great professionals. And then here was an Olympian. Oh, my God, an Olympian. You know, I, I remember when my dad took me to my first track meet in Los Angeles uh, at the Los Angeles Coliseum, which hosted the 1932 games. And I walked into that arena. And this incredible Colosseum, this is the Greek gods come to life in the story. This is where superhuman beings came and competed against each other. Here I was with my first Olympian meeting them. And that next morning when I came in with complete confidence and calm, uh, my brain calculated what I needed to do in regard to all the practice I had just put in. Now, in those 12 weeks, did you come back and audition or did you immediately start working with the ice capades? Uh, well, they wanted to see me audition, but they called Ronnie Robinson up and they said, Ronnie, uh, what's he looking like? And he said to them, he says, if you haven't signed them already, hmm. you're in trouble. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> he said, this kid has got it. He's got a great work ethic and he's got a great routine now that he's doing the music and you can put him anywhere in the show. And that was all it took. I got my contract. Sight unseen. They hired me without ever actually seeing me. And what was your career like? You spent, what, 10 years? Uh, so you were like 9 to 19? Was that, am I getting the ages right? I joined when I was, I think, uh, when I was 12, okay. wasn't I? I think it was 10 years total. That, that fact I do know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I was 12 years old when I joined. Because, uh, yeah, 70, 71, 72. Yeah, that Sullivan show. Yeah, and please forgive me because I've never actually looked back. It's one of the things that uh, I never did. I was always moving forward. And it was only until my dad passed away and I just sort of stopped for the first time in my life. And uh, I looked back. 
And I realized some of these things and, and coming up to do your podcast, I'm trying to be professional and be accurate to dates. Well, you're always professional. That's one of your key attributes. I left Escapades uh, in 1982, but during those years, uh, that's when I worked with more Olympians, more Olympic coaches. Of course, I worked with the famed uh, Dorothy Hamill, Ty and Randy, of course, Scott Hamilton. I got invited to do uh, the Olympic Tour of Champions, which uh, I was the only person out on the ice that hadn't won an Olympic medal. I did a lot of great shows all over the world on those tours. But uh, working with the Olympians and seeing that level of how they took care of themselves and how they had their own coaches. And then, of course, Ice Capades was so big back then. You know, we were owned by Mr. John Kluge, who was at that time the world's richest man. He owned a Metro Media Corporation. So it was really a, really a great time. And then um, my little brother, David, was also coming up behind me at that time. And uh, it was really kind of cool for him and I to be training and doing things. And uh, he had to learn to ice skate and be on the show. And it was just wonderful. And then I had uh, one, of my, one of my all-time best career moments uh, with the ice capades. What was that? Share that with us. It was at Madison Square Garden. I was, uh, it was uh, January of 1978, and I had uh, just gotten close to what I now consider my most technical trick that I ever performed on a daily basis. In other words, I performed it every day uh, in the show. I would do nine rings with uh, two hoops on my leg, ba balancing on one foot, and I had a mouse stick with a ball, and I would juggle nine rings for about three cycles. Wow. And opening night at Madison Square Garden, I received a uh, standing ovation. And uh, next day, the, uh, the newspapers were very kind, uh, and they said, uh, Dorothy Hamill billed as the star of Ice Capades, uh, but in fact, the evening's only standing ovation went to all things a juggler. Nice. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> to show you how cool Olympians are and how they're not envious of other people's success because they know in the athletic arena how hard one must train. Dorothy Hamill at her press conference the next day, they asked her, well, is she, uh, what's her next routine and what's her next number? And she said, actually, I'm going to start learning to juggle. Yeah, it was really a cool joke because uh, it was a prominent uh, critic, New York critic uh, in the Daily Post, I believe. And uh, it was really funny. And uh, wow, you know, she was uh, dating uh, Dean Paul Martin at the time, Dean Martin's son. They eventually uh, got married. But uh, Dean was also on the uh, professional tennis circuit. And when he would come to see uh, Dorothy on tour and then she would, of course, crash out, uh, he would get me to go to the local wherever he could rent a tennis court. And I would be his, his practice partner or what they call a hitting partner because I started playing tennis when I was, uh, you know, really young. And my dad, in all things that I did, he always had this sort of method. You hire the best coach you can get that's willing to take you. And you put in the time, you put in the respect because your time is valuable and you learn to do it as best you can with the proper coach. Well, I was a pretty good hitting partner for him. And of course, later on, led to my first sports sponsorship because he introduced me to one of the sales managers from the sporting clothes company, Fila. And they became my first professional sponsor when I juggled the Fila tennis rackets in my show. Let's talk about the ice capades. During those years, did you also have other gigs? Did you work in Vegas? Oh, did yeah. Have, so what, what kind of tour was it like a certain month you'd do with the ice capades and then you would work in Vegas on off months? What was What was the year like for you during that time? That's when I started doing opening acts for stars. I did opening act uh, for the Las Vegas Hilton, for Caesars Palace. 
I would fill in uh, for some of the production shows. I would fill in, I would go on tour, maybe do a couple weeks here or there with Liberace. I would do, uh, you know, Olympic touring shows or ex exhibitions. And then that's uh, when I got a chance. I filled in one year with the MGM at the uh, at the MGM Grand at the famed Jubilee show, which was the largest production show at that time on the largest stage in the world. And tell me about the award you won in 1977 from Las Vegas. Oh man, that that was a great year. I won the uh, Best Variety Act of the Year from the uh, Las Vegas Academy of uh, Variety Arts. And that was the same year that Elvis won Music Entertainer of the Year, Entertainer of the Year. And the cool thing about it was the Variety Act Award, it was the second to last award. And of course, you know, uh, Francis Brown had won it. Uh, Rudy Cardenas had won it in previous years. I think it was a biannual award. You got a little silver top hat uh, that you got. I got the award. I was very excited. I'm heading, it, the award ceremony was at the Las Vegas Hilton. As I was heading out through the kitchen, the back entrance, there I bump into Elvis Presley. And he looks at me and says, hey, kid, you're not going to juggle that, are you? Right. <laughs> and I look it up and I go, wow, uh, no, no, this one I'm going to this one, uh, this one I'm going to I'm going to give to my mom. So years later, when I toured Graceland, it was pretty interesting to see his award and his cabinet of all the different awards he had won through the years. And then, of course, I went to see his performance. And I got to tell you, it was, it was absolutely incredible. I had never seen it in my life that when a performer walked on stage, everybody stood up. Now, this is hardcore dinner Vegas. This was completely unknown. He walked on the stage and everybody stood up. And it was the most incredible thing I had ever seen. And when it ended, you just didn't want it to end. Oh, my God. And when he that voice of his. And he did a couple gospel songs that were just the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. I'd gone to the original opera houses all over the world, especially in Paris. And of course, those old opera houses, you know, they don't have microphones or speakers. The acoustics are just for the orchestra plays without any microphones or enhancement. And the actors sing and speak on the stage. And his voice was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. I got to see Elvis when I was a kid in Vegas. I think I was 11. And what struck me was, I was really young, of course, that he would, he would take off his scarf and he'd wipe off his sweat. And then people, the women would go crazy. I'm like, why do they want his sweaty scarves? And not realizing that for them, that this was a, a memento they would treasure the rest of their lives. Uh, that's a mystery. He was so beloved. He had a sex appeal, bro, that was yeah. just, oh yeah, he still looked great. This is in the time when he still looked great. And even when he spoke to me, that you hear that voice and you look at him, it was, uh, what's the fancy term? Iconoclastic. That's a modern term they use. But he was like the original superstar. You know what I mean? He transcended then uh, countries, religions. It was just amazing. Everyone all over the world knew who he was and loved him. He was the king. The king, no question. No question. No question. And uh, I received that award um, because of I went into that impossible position after the opening number at the Jubilee, which was the death of many performers. Uh, Siegfried and Roy had it when they were back in their variety days, when they were a variety act. And that opening number was we had like 106 dancers, showgirls. They were all talking about the history of the MGM movies. And they had these huge props that went up about three stories. And then right at the very end of this incredible montage of the great history of MGM and MGM studios, the MGM lion would come out and roar. And then it was a blackout. 
the curtain would drop and you had a little three foot passerella and a center passerella that went out in the audience. There I ran out. <laughs> with my, I used to stand in the wings watching this and I go, they don't want to see me. Who am I kidding? I'm going to go out after this. And uh, I opened up back then. I had a really good four Frisbee routine, which oddly enough, I learned in the Ice Capades. A lot of people may or may not remember this, but uh, Patrick Swayze was a very good figure skater. And he oh. was with Escapades for about two years. When I was backstage, I mean, throwing the Frisbee and doing Frisbee trick, this was a big deal. And man, he was so good with that. And he said, hey, have you ever thought about uh, maybe doing three, four or five of these? And he went on the ice and, with me. And, you know, my dad was always cool about this. And he would work with me. And, and so we developed this whole pattern of doing boomeranging Frisbees on the ice. And that became, for many years, my opening trick, and it's still a crowd favorite wherever I go. But that was my opening trick at the MGM Grand. And then when I finished that, the main curtain would go up, which gave me about six more feet, and there was my prop box, and I would start my routine. A funny story about my days at the MGM is that uh, years later, when I went back to the MGM and performed there full time, I'm doing my first trick, my Frisbees, and then my next trick was my four tennis rackets. And there was a live orchestra below the stage. All of a sudden, the live orchestra is hitting all these sour notes. I mean, this is one of the best orchestras in the world. And they're hitting sour notes. I'm like, what the heck's going on? And next thing I know, I hear the audience kind of laughing. And then I hear a guy on my right swearing what I think is German. And next thing you know, I hear a lion <laughs> sound. Right. Well, the MGM lion has decided to make a break for freedom. And he's now come out on the stage while I'm juggling. Right. And he comes behind me and they close him off on the stage. And the only place for him to hide is my prop box. So he jumps into my prop box, completely destroying it. And then, of course, they get him and they take him off while I try to continue my act. It's uh, one of the fun stories. And I just laughed. You know, I just laugh. So I have a feeling that that story may have contributed to why I, I, I won the Friday act of the year. And also, uh, an old adage comes up again. Don't work with animals. Don't work with kids oh, or yeah. animals, especially uh, lions. Yeah. And I, I don't understand where he was going to go. He was declawed. He had no teeth and he was completely neutered. So exactly... Where he was going and what he was going to do when he got there, I have no idea. One thing a lot of people might not know about you, when I saw you in Atlantic City, you had two acts because you also did a plate spinning act. When did you start doing that? Gosh, I did a, did a comedy plate spinning act for years when I would do charity shows. I performed a lot of orphanages through the years. I worked with the Shriners and the Masonic organizations for the Shriners uh, hospitals. And whenever I did a, an event that had kids, in it, I would do the comedy plate spinning act. It was something my dad enjoyed doing, and uh, he taught it to me. And of course, uh, he worked with a lot of plate spinners through the years uh, in vaudeville, and uh, they would come back to see him. It was just something I did for fun, and it was sort of like an emergency backup if anybody needed a second act. It was a good act. I remember seeing it because you did two spots in that show. And what people not, might not realize is these, these variety shows, they also had small pieces of ice. Like you would come out, and you didn't, uh, the ones I saw you in, the ice ring was really small, but they had actual ice rings on the stage. What was that transition like to these much smaller spaces? 
Well, again, I got great coaching. Uh, at this time, I went to uh, Nikki Powers, who did the Adagio at the Lido in Paris. Now, Nikki was a disciple of Ronnie Robinson. The Lido in Paris has this ice that comes out of the floor and onto the stage. It's really beautiful, and it's very, very small. It's uh, 15 by 15. And to do what they did, the tricks they did on that rink was just phenomenal. So he taught me how to perform there's a different type of technique, a different sharpening on your blades because you're taking steeper angles. I ended up actually doing what I thought was one of my best three club routines because I could cut in the corners and change directions and the audience seemed to appreciate it. But it was about three weeks of practice to make the conversion. And one of the tricks you did on ice with the skates that looks so good is a trick that became known as Albert throws, where you would actually face your blades away from each other in kind of that crouching position and move along the stage while you did those continuous crotch throws. Let's talk a little bit about the Albert throws and how that trick got its name. Wow, that trick I did on the ice, uh, the skating position is called a spread eagle. Mm -hmm. The origin of that, uh, do you wanna start with uh, the origin of the trick itself in the juggling community? Uh, Cause I have a citation, <laughs> I have a citation and I wanna say that uh, I spoke to David Kane Okay. He's got a great book out, 200 Historical Jugglers That Every Juggler Should Know. And you can get it at uh, jugglingmuseum.com. Anyways, I checked uh, about what I'm going to say now so that I could get a citation for it because I pride myself, especially since I want to honor the past and respect the past. But Morris Cronin was the very tall gentleman juggler who kind of did it on one side. In other words, he would throw one club on one side maybe a couple times and stop. And then he might do the other side, but there's no evidence that he did it in the continuous fashion. And he tended to do it from back to front. Uh, now, Rudy Horn did it from front to back in the manner that you've seen me do it. He used doubles. He mm -hmm. did it double turns, which kind of changed the visual of the trick. But it turns out that the historical evidence finally determined that Edward Abert uh, in the 1960s is accredited with doing the throws continuously from front to back. Now, here's the story as it works with me. My dad saw Bobby May do this trick in the old roller shows and on ice. And he got it in his mind. He told Bobby, he said, Bobby, have you ever thought about doing that on both sides continuously while you're moving? And Bobby said, ah, no, the audience likes the one side and I can do a circle and I can reverse it and do the opposite side. And it works with our pattern. So now, Fast forward, I've got these great clubs designed specifically for the trick. And in Ice Capades, I started practicing this trick, but both sides continuously with single rotation. We perform in Cleveland at the Richfield Coliseum, and Bobby May comes to the show. And uh, after the show, Bobby comes back. He goes up to my dad, and he hugs my dad, and he says to my dad, Albert, if I had known... It would look that beautiful. I would have done it both sides like you told me to. He said it was the most beautiful trick he'd ever seen with three clubs, especially on ice with the move. That was kind of the history of it that dad taught to me. I brought the trick back in the 70s with the ice capades because it really hadn't been seen in the modern era. Now, Kit Summers is the guy who wrote the story who called it Albert Throws and the Reverse Treblas. But here's the thing. When people called it Albert Throws, I never really thought they were talking about me. I thought they were paying homage to my dad because he was the one that tried to convince Bobby and he's the one that taught it to me. I had no idea about this trick and I didn't know of anybody else who did. 
So that's kind of the history of it. That's interesting. Uh, he was right. What a beautiful trick that was, especially the way you moved across the ice while you did it. I think the reason Kate called it that because no one ever made it look that good. I mean, I think you, you popularized it. If you didn't exactly invent it, you're certainly the one who made it a popular trick. I think so. I brought it back to life through my dad, through Bobby May, through the greats of that era. Then with the ice capades, it could be that I'm the first to do it on ice. But I kind of let history be the judge of that. He had a great career also working at different sporting events. Take me through some of the highlights of working basketball games and NHL games. What were some of the, the top events you did on the sporting realm? Oh, my God. Uh, did the NBA Finals about four times. Did the NBA All-Star Games. I uh, did the Stanley Cup uh, three times. The All-Star Game twice. The NHL All-Star Game. The American Hockey League All-Star Game did the WNBA championship. I did the NBDL championship. Oh, I did the NCA final four. And, and speaking of icons, did you ever get a chance to uh, work or, or meet Michael Jordan? Oh my goodness. I could do better than that. 1997 and 1998, I did the NBA finals uh, in Utah. And uh, in 1998 finals, of course, uh, there was just this big special, these 12 episode specials about the Last Dance with Jordan. I did the 19, I'm sorry, the 1998. Oh, I want to get these dates right. I think I have June 14th, 1998, NBA Finals. Right, 1987 and 1988 NBA Finals. And the reason I know all this is they gave me a piece of the floor uh, from Final <laughs> Jordan, and it's actually signed by Jordan. It's a wonderful, it was given to me by the, uh, the sporting good company that bought the floor and they uh, were doing pieces of the floor and they're giving it, they're giving the pieces and the uh, general manager and the owner of the Utah jazz who I performed with before. And I, of course, you know, many of these arenas, everybody knew me because I had gone there with the ice capades and I had forgotten all about the floor. And it wasn't until uh, years ago when my dad was cleaning out the garage and he says, Albert, um, I think this was for you. And, and it was a nice letter from the organization uh, thanking me for my appearance. And uh, they gave me a piece of the floor. But, but this time you're working just on the stages. Uh, what year did you stop kind of doing the ice skating? Or is that something you've kind of done throughout your entire career? Well, the, at the end of 10 years with Ice Capades, I had accomplished just about everything that I had set out to accomplish. You know, it was a great time for me to now get on to see the rest of the world and transition. At that point, uh, I had a contract for the uh, Hacienda Hotel in Las Vegas. And uh, what really attracted me was Jerry Jackson was producing the show. He also produced the Folies Vigere at that time. And I really enjoyed my time at the Folies when I was there. In fact, I was, uh, when they closed it, when they finally had their final show, they invited me back and it was really great uh, to see some of the old performers and comedians, but uh, the Hacienda, was uh, where I went back to. And then from there, I started doing like a one-man show. That's when I started thinking about doing a one-man show and speaking engagements and emceeing shows. And then uh, that's when the comedy kind of started as well. Interesting. I don't think people think of you as a, a talking juggler. Was Did you, what you would call like the regular comedy juggling or was it more of an inspirational type of speech? Or did you kind of follow the Michael Davis sort of route? What, what, what was Albert Lucas like as a comedy juggler? Well, that kind of hurts a little bit. You can't picture me as a comedy joke. <laughs> I just got, never saw it. I just never saw it. There was a little sting there. Uh, <laughs> no, no. What happened, I got these wonderful invitations. Like, you know, I was invited to speak at the National Geographic Society. I got to talk about juggling and I talk about the history of juggling. And I got all the audience members 
to juggle three scarves. I did my uh, 12 rings for one cycle as an exhibition, talked about the history of juggling and so forth. Uh, and so I found you could be really serious about juggling, but I found that because I came in and I had this skill set and I could impress people, the one thing they didn't see coming was the fact that I could say something funny and make them laugh. And then I could keep making them laugh as I was being and doing these serious tricks. And I'd have these jokes. I, I told you about the great trick that I did, my most technical trick mm -hmm. I ever did. And here I was, 17 years old, heading to eight, 18. That was a big year for me because the agreement with my dad uh, was at 18 years old. Uh, he kicked me out of the house and I was to go out into the world and learn my lessons. Well, part of that was I had trained so hard, I didn't really date. So here I am doing this incredible trick, nine rings, two for the leg, almost three cycles. And I'm doing this every night. And then I turn 18 and I'm doing it on the ice and I'm performing. And then for some reason, right after I started dating, it was hard for me to concentrate and do that trick with any consistency. It's like life comes up, life changes, priorities change. Right. And so I'd start sharing these stories and the uh, audience seemed to love it. My appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, talking about how at weird times people would come up to me like the NBA finals. And my handler says to me, wow, aren't you nervous? Aren't you afraid that you're going to go out there and drop everything? That'd be like the equivalent of a Formula One driver getting into his car before the start of the race. And you go, hey, dude, aren't you afraid you're like going to crash this thing into the wall and burn it? <laughs> right. Right. And in fact, I tell I told my wife, Ruth, I said, look, people are going to do this. It's kind of a phenomenon. But don't take it personally and don't let it bother you uh, because they don't mean anything by it. They're just taken up. The experiences of my life, the fact my dad allowed me to study transcendental meditation when I was 16, that taught me how to uh, control my emotions, to control my breathing, my heart rate. That also allowed me to get ahead of nerves. Nerves have never really entered into it for me. Well, you're always a very consistent juggler. I've seen you probably perform half a dozen times. I don't think I've ever seen you drop, especially in the high pressure situations. Now let's talk about some high pressure situations. Let's talk about the Ed Sullivan show. So that was uh, November of 1970. What right. was that experience like? And let's talk about your uh, TV highlights. That was a big moment for me for a couple reasons. Every adult I knew kept coming up to me and saying, man, I, I hear you're doing the Ed Sullivan show. Man, did you know the uh, the Beatles were in the Ed Sullivan show? Did you, did you know? And they started rattling off all these famous people because the Ed Sullivan show was it. It still holds the highest ratings for a television uh, variety show. It has never been surpassed. So all these people kept telling me about all these famous people that were coming on the show. You know, are you ready? Are you not? So that was the first time when I realized I need to do a good job on this show. Right. Make sure I warm up really extra. And, you know, so you could say that's the first time I became aware of failure or nerves. And it's exactly that point that Michael Crichton invited me to the Aspen Design Conference because it was success or failure was the name of the con uh, conference. He wanted me to talk about the Ed Sullivan Show, what it was like being a child performer, and what was the moment when you realized this could go bad and you might get embarrassed. And it was that moment. So I, I did the Ed Sullivan Show. Wow, it was so professional. The theater was very small. The... Um, comedian at the end of the show, it was live broadcast, was Joan Rivers. And uh, oh my goodness, you're not gonna believe this. Ed Sullivan, 
who knew that my dad and the Los Gatos trio had been on the Ed Sullivan show back in 51 and had known my dad and knew people that knew dad and Los Gatos trio. He thought it was like the coolest thing to have his son come on. And of course, I think Ed Sullivan went maybe one more year after that. He was like so excited to have us on the show. And so he put me on last. Okay. I, I right. was on last. Before that was the comedian Joan Rivers. Well, she knew that there was no cut between her and me. Okay. Right. So she started stretching her routine. Oh, <laughs> all right. Now, anybody in show business knows exactly what I just said. Sure. Okay. So now the director comes back and says, okay, you're going to have to cut this. Mm. You're going to have to cut that. I'm right. 10 years old, right? You're cutting major routines in the show with a live orchestra. Everybody is looking to you to be professional, to do it, right? right? And my dad, my dad left a lot of this on my shoulders in the sense he didn't want me to always lean on him because this was the real life of, of show business. I got down to about four tricks. Mm, right. And uh, my dad said, that's it. If you cut one more thing, you get Joan Rivers to finish the show out. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 no. So I went on. And um, I did my routine, and a couple things stand out. I didn't know it at the time, but that was the last time my dad appeared on stage with me. It was the last time he appeared on stage with me. Well, your dad was a, I'm, I'm sorry to choke up too, your dad was a wonderful man. And I imagine thinking about that moment with him is a really priceless memory. So uh, yeah. I totally understand your emotion. I'm, 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 sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, I totally understandable. Totally understandable. He it's was a great, great man. I just, I just miss him. Yeah. Well, especially Father's Day was just the other day. You know, we're yeah. doing this like a couple of days after Father's Day. So I understand. You know, going over all these things, you know, uh, Ed Zellin was so gracious. He called us over. He called dad and I over, which wasn't scheduled. And uh, he killed the last commercial, which was a big deal. Hmm. And he had he had the power to do that. And he came over and uh, his words on the videotape and how he greeted dad and myself was so professional and showed such kindness. You see, what happened was I uh, I thought I had done something wrong. Oh, because when, when he brought you over, you mean? No, when they started cutting my routine. Oh, I see. Right. You didn't realize that Joan Rivers was going long? Yeah, they, nobody had the time to explain it to me. Right, and you were just a kid. You were you were the youngest solo performer ever. It's nineteen seventy. She's only eight or nine years old. I thought I had done something wrong, and uh, so I'm standing there with Dad, and uh, there's the, the director comes up, and the other person, and I and I tell my Dad, I said, look, my costume, my costume. I have my costume on. I'm ready. I, I have the routine. I I've warmed up. I've warmed up. I know the routine. I have everything. All my props are here. I kept. I kept saying how ready I was. What did I do wrong? And that's when I saw the, the emotion and the, the adults in the room. And I realized, I realized that, that something was wrong or there was stress. And, and, and so all I had really was my training. And the thing was that you couldn't get answers to things sometimes. You had to do your, your job and your job was to go on that stage. And your job was to perform, and that was your profession, and that's what you did. And and people did this sick, and the people did this hurt, and people did this, you know, having lost family members. And and I understood that great heritage and tradition. And 
And so I sucked it up. So afterwards, I, I went back to the dressing room and just cried. Well, I think a lot of people nowadays, they don't understand the pressure of being on live television. You see a lot of great jugglers on video. Yeah. And a lot of people make videos, especially for YouTube, where they're, they're the edit and they're able to show just their best stuff. Yeah. But, but this idea of live television, whether it's, you know, Sullivan or the Carson show or yeah. other shows you did like Michael, Mike Douglas show. Yeah. They wanted you to do well. It wasn't like America's Got Talent where it was like, they don't care if you do well or you do bad as long as it's something they can, they can exploit or, or use for the show. Yeah. Back then, it was, it was all or nothing. Like, they didn't edit. It, yeah. it was a lot of pressure. And to be a young kid, like, I didn't do, start doing TV shows till I was in my early 20s. So I can imagine if you don't understand what's going on and you think that somehow you've done something wrong and now you have to actually go on live TV and pull it together, like you say, suck it up. Be a professional at that young age. It's intense, and, and the emotions involved with it are intense. So I can really understand, uh, you know, how you felt in that moment. And uh, uh, you know, I tell people, a word got back to Ed Sullivan that I was upstairs, and what had happened. And uh, he came upstairs, and he sat me down. This was the beauty of that generation. He didn't talk to me like a little kid. He said, first of all, I want to thank you. You were very professional to have your whole act cut like that. And to do so, you didn't drop anything. You did your job and you did exactly what we needed and uh, very professional. And it's just like your dad. And he said, I want to thank you for that. He says, next, I want to explain to you what happened. It's not your fault. This is what happened. And he didn't talk to me like a little kid. He explained it to me. Okay. And I really appreciated that. But the only thing is that when I left that dressing room that day, I sort of left my childhood there. I, I, I was no longer a, a child performer. It was uh, the curing process for me. And it, that's just the profession. That's just the way it is. And I happen to be a child. And, you know, the, you put that against the backdrop of why my dad works so hard why he taught me to play baseball at such a young age, you know, why he uh, allowed me to go and scuba dive and why he allowed me all these things to go to school. He taught me all, he taught me how to fish. Uh, I had this such a rich life with him that was so far removed from juggling that, you know, I had that strength to go on that it was just him and I. And again, you know, he never hit me. He never made demands. Whenever I did have a failure, he never belittled me. He never looked disappointed. He just said, look, do you know what happened? I go, I did this and that. And he said, okay. He says, you'll see it again and you'll know what to do. And then he would just drop it. He'd just drop it and move on. And, and I would learn those lessons. And, uh, you know, so the Ed Sullivan moment was a correlation of me not understanding my environment for the last time. From that point on, I understood my environment completely. And let's talk a bit about this, this life you've led. Let's get out, let's get away from juggling just for a little bit because you've had a very interesting life outside of juggling as well. Like you talk about learning to scuba dive, but you did more than that. Uh, tell me about a little about your experience with scuba and who you got to meet and who you got to intern with. Oh my God. Yeah. The, um, my dad allowed me to get my, um, Diving certification when I was 16 years old through uh, what they call PADI, Professional Association of Diving Instructors. I was in Las Vegas. I got my basic scuba diving certification. This is back when you had to have your 
your lungs x-rayed and your ears checked by a doctor before you could go in and start the eight-week course. So uh, I got my certification and I started scuba diving and I recorded over 3,000 dives. Uh, wreck diving turned out to be my favorite. And after a lifetime of diving, I got a master of diving certification from Patty, Professional Associate Diving Instructors with 12 specialty ratings. And then um, I got a, a letter from Patty and US Divers where they were looking to test out some new equipment and they were gonna do it aboard the uh, Calypso. And in fact, I was gonna be an intern serving aboard the Calypso, testing out this new gear. So I was basically a gopher, swabby, cleaning the ship, testing out the gear, doing all the stuff. And then uh, eventually uh, got to meet Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, one of the coolest guys from my, my era. Oh my God, it was a really great, you know, he was known for his pomp and circumstance. And on our last day after being interns aboard this beautiful ship, which, uh, by the way, I think it's been re it's been reconditioned, and I think it's going to be relaunched here. I think next year we got a flag that actually had flown uh, on the Calypso, and uh, we got a photograph signed by him. It was really a great moment to to meet him and to have just a very small internship aboard a very famous ship is uh, raising awareness about the ecologies of the ocean and the creatures in the ocean. I think he started that trend to help people understand about pollution, and uh, that's. Pretty much uh, right now, my number one charity is to help pull garbage and plastics out of the ocean so that we can uh, hopefully uh, clean it up. Well, you've always been a great athlete. I mean, that's certainly contributed to your juggling success as well, and also your ability to perform on stage and your training and just always being in, uh, professional, you know, always maintaining your shape. Tell me about your studying of Japanese uh, fencing, also called kendo. Oh, yeah. I started working in Japan. I worked... Uh, in a place called Itami. It's about uh, 30 minutes by bullet train outside of Tokyo. It's known for its uh, volcanic spas. It's a very, very beautiful place. And uh, I was working there and I was trying to get into the Japanese fencing school. It's called Taishinkan, but they wouldn't take me because I was a foreigner. So eventually I had to get the owner of the uh, New Fujia Hotel to actually go and vouch for me. And uh, so they did and we went up to the school and we sat there and the instructor Mr. Yonekrasan, he was the sensei, and they had a discussion and I just sat there. And then on the drive back, the owner says to me, Albert, you're never late and you do exactly what he says when he says to do it. <laughs> Which is what the Japanese, they're very much into that, right? They're very much into... Right. And they don't think we can ever be that disciplined. And, right. and fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, I showed up early and I started right at the beginning. And I started with these kids who were like five years old, and here's this adult. They stuck me in the, the, the lowest class possible to see if I had the gumption to stay in. And then, of course, you know, they put you through all this internship. And then I stuck with it and stuck with it. And after four years, uh, I received uh, the rank of, um, of Shodan and uh, competed in several tournaments. And it was really a great time. And uh, years later, I came back and played uh, corporate baseball for the New, F New Fujia Corporation for two seasons, which was really great. And what, what position did you play as a baseball player? I was Mr. Left Field. Okay. Uh, but I was, uh, I was always the leadoff guy because I could make uh, good contact with the ball. And I had a very, a very low strikeout, uh, strikeout percentage. And a lot of that had to do with the fact playing tennis and studying Japanese uh, kendo. And also I studied... Uh, Olympic uh, style foil fencing. The reason that we did that, or my dad did that, is that he had read a story about how Bruce Lee 
was always concerned about developing one side more than the other. And he had actually taken up Olympic style fencing to be both left and right handed. I had been born left handed, but I was taught to be right handed, kind of like uh, Rafa Nadal, the famed tennis player. He plays left handed, but he uh, he's actually right handed when he signs his autographs. It was uh, one of the top tips that allowed me to excel in juggling later on when I went for records and things like that was that symmetry or that well balance I'm developing on the both left and right side of my body. And let's talk about where, ju where juggling and athletics kind of meet together, which was, is juggling, because also you were a big proponent of juggling. And I remember when me and Barry were working in Atlantic City, we were there when you went off on a 50 mile jog. Oh my you God. Left, you left at night after your shows and came back the next day and did two more shows. Tell me about your career in juggling and what interested you in that. Well, uh, let's see. In, in uh, 1976, my dad came home with two pairs of running shoes. They're the Nike, they call the long distance or LD 1000s. These were kind of the first waffle shoes that Nike had. He started me on running and cardiovascular fitness. At that time, I really didn't have good running shoes, but cardiovascular fitness with short sprints was always something that he had me do. I started running and then uh, at some point I started adding uh, the juggling balls unbeknownst that a sport of juggling uh, had been created through the IJA. And I believe it was Bill Giddes and Dave Finnegan that actually coined the phrase uh, juggling. I really enjoyed it. And I thought by running and juggling certain events, at certain speeds, you could garner instant respect from the non-juggling community. And what are some of your records and some of the highlights of your juggling career? Oh my goodness. Uh, I learned later on that I had, I actually had fast twitch fibers, which meant I was more designed for sprinting, but uh, I loved running long distances. I just enjoyed going out for cruise runs. Mm -hmm. and so when Guinness started, wanted to make the marathon the very first uh, category, uh, in the Guinness Book of World Records in 1987, I ran the LA Marathon in 1987, which was a great year for me because I also did the NBA Finals that year, and I also did the NCAA Final Four. Uh, it was Los Angeles and then the Kingdom in Seattle. We came out. I had the adjudicators run with me. They made me start at the back of the pack, and uh, I was off and rolling and ran the LA Marathon in 1987 and set a time I think just a little over four hours. And then I ran New York City that year. I got it under four hours. And then I came back in, in 1988 and I ran three hours and 23 minutes, I believe. And I think it's still the fastest no-drop marathon uh, that Guinness has on file. But I also did the 110-meter hurdles, the 400-meter hurdles, and of course the big four-by-one-mile relay that we set the world record in 1990 with Owen Morris, uh, uh, Tui Wilson, John, we, myself. And that was a great moment. We did the relay. It was really cool. Let's talk a little bit about uh, competitions and the IGA. You've had quite a few accomplishments as a competitor at the IGA. Do I have this right that you have 48 lifetime medals from the yeah. IGA? Yeah, it's true. Very impressive. I had, went back and uh, I did had an official recount. Yeah, it was... Uh, I can't believe it. 1969, I won two bronze medals, my first one at nine years old. And then the uh, following year, I won my first gold medal, uh, juggling uh, seven rings. And that record still stands as the greatest number of objects at the youngest age. 
it still stands, which uh, is like 50 years. And then um, in Burlington, Vermont in 1994, I won five jogging medals in one day, which <laughs> really cool. Right. Nobody's ever done that before. But my dad had played semi-pro uh, football in Burlington, Vermont for the Burlington Ironman, which was really cool. After those two years, I didn't come back till 84. And then in 84, I won the, uh, the championship. And a footnote to that is that my younger brother, David, won the junior event that same year. So I think it's the only time that two siblings have ever won the IJA championship. That was a great day. That, my dad and I, that was the last time we really trained together for a particular goal. And uh, it was really great. And I really enjoyed 19, uh, 1984. I set a bunch of Guinness records as well prior to the IJA convention. I won something that they called the Grand Slam of Juggle. I set a world record in four events at the 84. And of course... I competed against you, big guy. Yep, yep. You did beat me. I came in third that year, and uh, it was a well-earned victory by you. I don't think I was nearly the juggler you were. I, I just always played it safe and would do a very clean routine, so I didn't drop much, but I always played it pretty safe. I never had your level of technical skill, so I held, I held no grudges that you beat me that year. Oh, that was a, a, one of my favorite pictures is uh, that artist uh, for the IJ drew uh, yourself, Mark Neiser, and I. I remember when I came over with the trophy and we all three of us hoisted in the air. That was a really nice moment. If you remember when I did my performance, do you remember how they had that mini stage that rolled out with the drummer to get to get the percussion? Yeah, yeah, you had a drummer, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a live drummer. That's just showed back in the analog days. And then, of course, they handed us that plastic bowling trophy, you know, as the champion, which was... <laughs> Yeah, I still have that darn thing to this day. It's sitting up on my shelf right now. And was that one of the reasons you decided to create uh, what's come as, what's come to be known as the Lucas Cup? Well, yeah, I approached the IJA and I said, look, I spent 18 months training with the, for this uh, to, to come to the IJA and compete. It's the most prestigious uh, competition in the world. It's one of the hardest to win. How about we do what other sports have done? and create a prize to inspire people to win, get all the names of the, the founders of the IJA on there, and then start a tradition like they did with the Stanley Cup uh, or like uh, Dwight Davis did with the Davis Cup. And then, of course, there was um, the, the Reitman Cup, which established the, the first women's professional uh, tennis circuit. And uh, this, with a little research, I found that there are literally thousands of trophies like this out there that presented a wonderful prize so that people could be inspired to win and want their name to join the previous champions and the history of the organization. And so I said, okay, uh, how about this? Uh, so that they could take it home and show their family and they go back to, like we had many people from Japan win, they take it back to Japan and it looks like it's supposed to be a genuine world championship. That's the IJA World Championship Trophy. I think about six or seven years later is when the, the board was very kind to name it after me. The deed of gift when I presented it, you know, I said uh, basically after 10 years, if you want to continue it, great. And it's now in its 34th year. It's been given out 34 times. Yeah, I've never won one myself, but I've always wanted one. I think it's too late, but uh, it's very generous. And the fact that it's been going on for 34 years shows it's now part of the legacy of the IGA. It certainly is. And then in the future, like I tell people all the time, when I made the very first one, the first ones were, were made by Tiffany's and I had a miniature made. And that miniature was to go to the first woman to win, which was uh, Cindy Marvel. 
and she won it in Baltimore in 1989. And that's one of the things about inspiring women to compete and so forth. And I'm looking forward to uh, the IJA in Wichita, Kansas, because uh, we're going to have a special ceremony and uh, we're going to re-celebrate her, her wonderful win. And of course, Francois became the second woman to win. And hopefully we can inspire more, more women to compete in the IJA and uh, win the top prize. And then when, when they do so, uh, we all get to celebrate uh, the diversity of juggling. Competition has always been important to you. And uh, obviously sports have been important to you. At what point did you decide to create your own sort of sports juggling? And how did the term sports juggling come about, your own sports juggling federation? Uh, that came about uh, from uh, Mr. Mc Norris McWhorter, the founder of the Guinness Book of World Records. There was a uh, press conference in New York around 1999, and they were honoring all the great record holders of the Guinness Book of World Records prior to the new century. And uh, I won an award from Guinness because I had set more juggling records in more categories than, than any other juggler. And uh, in that discussion, Norris was saying, in order to go forward on this, we're going to have to come up with a complete different description of what it is you do. And so in a conference call with Gene Jones, uh, who was the associate editor of the Guinness Book at that time, U.S. version, and uh, David Bohm, who was the U.S. editor, and of course, Norris was on the conference call, and I was there. And they said, well, you know, you've really done it like a sport. You train like an athlete. It's almost like you're, and Norris then said, you're a sport juggler and you're doing sport juggling. And he wanted this to be established because he wanted a better description for the general public to understand the athleticism that uh, jugglers possessed, especially when you got up to, at that time, I'd set the record for 12 rings for one cycle. Plus I held the 100 meter world record uh, which was right around 12 seconds. And where are you at in that process now? Is this still an ongoing concern? And, and what's what's our chances of getting juggling in the Olympics? Well, uh, once we did the sport juggling and once we got that established, I went back to Norris and I said, look, I've developed using the international model. I developed this organization called the International Sport Juggling Federation. I don't want to be the president of it, but I, I would love if you would be a founder and a co-founder with me since this has been your idea of how to take it forward. Like a lot of times I would tell people when I do 10 objects in my performance and I do 10 objects when I do my one man show aboard cruise ships or exhibitions, I would tell people in the audience that when you juggle 10 objects, that's the equivalent of running a sub four minute mile on the track. And people begin to equate the, the physicality of it. And then of course, uh, with uh, my association with Professor Shannon, Clyde Shannon, he used to call the, uh, the ring world record, like the most rings juggled as the 100 meter equivalent. It was sort of like a marquee equivalent of juggling. And we had a lot of great discussions and uh, he was a great man and it was, it was a pleasure to know him. So when I put this all together, I established the International Sport Juggling Federation with Norris McWhorter, myself as the founder and uh, the board is getting ready to select the very first uh, president of the federation. And I believe the time is right to, uh, to launch. And if it wasn't for COVID, I think we would have already launched. But I think we're going to have the announcement uh, in my last conversation. Uh, I think it's going to be in October of this year or December, just before the close of the year. But it will be launching this year. I think it's one of the, the shames of juggling is that coaching has not really become a big part of it. And in any other field, the first thing they would suggest is if you want to excel, if you want to accelerate your learning, get a coach, get a mentor. Why repeat the mistakes that others have made before you? 
So the idea that now as you sort of reach the end of your career, and not yet, of course, but you have all this knowledge, so your desire to teach and pass along this knowledge, I think is, is great, it's wonderful. And I think people should take advantage of it. If people want to take advantage and they want you to sort of be part of their team and get on a board as a coach and an advisor and tell these wonderful techniques for this, the highest technique possible, including juggling 10 rings, how would they contact you? You can reach me uh, through the Federation. You can reach me at uh, on this podcast, uh, sportjuggler at me.com. The key to what you're saying is this. The reason I was able to have such a good career, it's no coincidence I had a coach. Why was Alexander Kiss so great? He had a coach. Uh, why is Anthony Gatto great? He had a coach. And the list goes on. That's why I have so much respect for people that didn't have coaches, because for the first time, I don't have a coach. Like you, I don't have a coach. I, and, and I'm kind of struggling with my training right now in the sense of uh, I want to have one more day in the sun and come back for the records. But uh, I've taken on a few students through the years to find out if the technique really does work. I took on uh, Sam Hartford. And I got him all the way up to uh, 12 rings. I think he's the first teenager ever to juggle 12 rings for one cycle. And uh, he did 10 rings twice around uh, or for two cycles. And uh, worked with Nicholas Soren. Uh, he's ready for the 12 ring bump. And then I think someone um, that you worked with, uh, Niels Dunker, he contacted you for uh, coaching. And he's just reached out to me. And I did a preliminary uh, testing of him to see if he had the credentials. He wants to do uh, 10 rings for two cycles. And he asked me, he wasn't sure if he could do 12. And what was my assessment? And I put him through the paces and I said, yeah, if you're coached properly, you could do 12 objects for one cycle and 10 rings twice around. No question. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of it. You want to be good at anything? You got to have a coach. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast, Albert. I'd like to give you the final word. Uh, what do you want people to, to know about you? What do you think that maybe people have misunderstood? And how would you like to end this podcast? <laughs> In five words or less. No. In five words or less. <laughs> I would like to point out that uh, my drive to achieve all these things, a lot of people could view it as uh, ego-driven or, or my own personal vanity. But I would ask them to reconsider. I would ask them to reconsider with this point. I realized at a young age who the Los Gatos were and how much my dad had given up when he retired from the Los Gatos. They could have kept going. He retired from Los Gatos to give me a career. But here's the point. I never felt like I was worth it. I never felt I was good enough or, or smart enough or, or talented enough to accept such a sacrifice from my dad. And the only tool I had was to try as hard as I possibly could to take juggling as far as I could, to say yes to this and say yes to juggling and to say yes to these things. Because I, I was always trying to show my dad that I understood the debt I owed him. I wrote that check every month to pay on that debt. And, and that was the only thing I could do. It wasn't until he passed away when I realized that he had retired the debt long ago. And it wasn't any of the events I achieved or records. He was content and he considered the debt paid because I turned out to be a successful professional, a respectful professional. Like you, you can go online or interviews and all that, and you won't find me saying derogative things about other jugglers. You see, respect always being paid. I love the IJA, I respect the IJA, and this has always been a hallmark, like yourself and many other jugglers, 
of my career. So now moving forward, I look at my dad and how he taught me to juggle using silk scarves, how he learned and got the idea of working with the Magadors, a magic act that used two silk scarves to produce a pigeon. And he thought, wow, how great that would be to teach someone how to juggle. All the seniors I taught to juggle, all the kids in the crippled children's hospitals that couldn't move very well, that were in a wheelchair or in a hospital bed, I taught them how to juggle with three scarves. And I don't know if my dad invented that or he was the first to come up with it. But when I went to Moscow uh, in 1988 and I ran the Moscow Marathon, I gave an exhibition at the Moscow State School of Circus and Variety Arts at their famed building. And all their performers came out to see me. And they all knew that I had done 12 rings, that I had surpassed Ignatov, the greatest juggler in, in, in the history of the system that produced all these great performers. And I did my 12 rings on my second try. I got a nice round of applause. But when I juggled the four scarves, they had never seen that before. And I got a standing ovation <laughs> juggling four scarves. And, and that was such a great moment for me in a sense. And that was a gift from my dad and a, a gift of this wonderful thing called juggling and this wonderful career. I realized when he passed away and I looked at all these dates and numbers talking to you today, just how much was accomplished because I, I felt I owed my dad my best effort to repay that debt. And I, I would think it's probably like that for a lot of sons and daughters whose parents have sacrificed for them so they could go to college or a technical school or to the arts. As I get to the end of my career, I would ask for that sort of consideration as to why I was driven for so many years. My dad loved juggling. I was taught by him. It's been such a great career and such a great life that I uh, just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I want to thank you, Albert, for always being a class act. <laughs> I'm getting a little emotional myself for being so welcoming when I was a kid and always being an inspiration to me. And thank you for having part of your career be included on the Drop Everything podcast. So from all our listeners and from myself, uh, thank you for all you've done for juggling. Uh, Albert Lucas, thank you. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 84. I really appreciate Albert for taking the time and for all he's done for juggling and all he'll do for juggling in the future. Before we go, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. One more time, let's hear it for the International Jugglers Association. I'll be doing a special podcast from the IJA Virtual Festival on July 14th at 6.30 Pacific Standard Time with my special guest, Scotty Meltzer. All right, before you go, one more thing. Drop everything except when you're juggling.